All right, we'll get started. Welcome back, everybody. Just give you a warning, you know, uh, being on vacation and stuff, after being out of the pulpit for a while, I forget how to speak slowly, so <laughs> be ready. Tonight we're going to be in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. I didn't get any further than that. 14, verse 1, where we read, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for bringing us back together, Lord, after some time away. God, I thank you that we have an opportunity to study your word together, to hear you speak through your word, Lord, to search for truth in your Bible, God. I just thank you for that. So I pray that your spirit would move tonight, Lord, that you would speak truth to our hearts and our minds, Lord, into our lives, that we may know you more. We love you, we praise you, give you all the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this vision cycle that we're in began in chapter 12, with the history of redemption told in very broad terms. We saw the woman who's Israel, who was made as a nation by God to bring forth the child who is Christ. We saw the dragon who is Satan and other angels falling through rebellion. We saw the dragon trying to kill the child, which was Satan trying to destroy Christ. And when he couldn't, and Christ finished his work at his first coming, Satan was expelled from heaven. Now he knew he had lost. And now he knows his time is short. And now he wants to thwart the mission of the church as much as he can before the end comes. And we saw in part how he does this when we saw the two beasts of Revelation chapter 13. John sees Satan of the dragon standing on the shore and he sees these two horrible looking beasts. One comes out of the sea and that beast represents the secular powers. One comes out of the earth and that beast represents religious power. And this is how Satan has tried to slow down the church from the very beginning. Through the world and its ways, and through false religion and its ways, especially nominal Christianity. And we saw that these beasts also point to the final Antichrist, who will lead with both secular and religious power, causing the great apostasy and turning the whole world against the true church. And he'll succeed for a time against the church. He will be given authority, we're told, to prevail over us in earthly terms, but only after the church has completed her mission and brought the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we who are alive, we will suffer, will be put in prison, will be killed, but the faith and endurance of the saints will overcome. <clears throat> and the last thing we saw was that the second beast, false religion, causes the world to worship the first beast, which is worldly power, and that those that do, that worship that beast, are marked with the number or the name of the beast. And we saw the number represents Adam and his failure and all those who fall short by remaining in their fallen condition. Now, still in the same vision, don't let the chapter breaks fool you here, we're still in the same vision, John just saw these beasts and all that, and then he sees something else. He says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So John looks, and he sees, first of all, Mount Zion. Now, here's the question. Where is Mount Zion? Well, this is the only time in the book of Revelation that Mount Zion is referred to. And it's not as easy as saying, well, this is just a literal Mount Zion, because the literal location of the literal Mount Zion literally changes in the Bible. Now, most people associate Mount Zion with the Temple Mount in Jerusalem or with the whole city of Jerusalem itself. The question is, is that what the Bible really teaches? Well, the answer may surprise you. The answer is no, but kind of yes, but then definitely no. To make this easier, I'll tell you right off the bat. 
Mount Zion here in Revelation is not a physical place, but a people. Mount Zion represents the church in this verse, like it often does in the Old Testament. But the question is, how do we get there? How do we determine that Mount Zion is a reference to the church? Well, Mount Zion, or Zion, is referred to 163 times in the Bible. In the New Testament, it's used only seven times. And of those seven, five are actually quotes from the Old Testament. So there's really only two passages in the New Testament that speak of Zion, one of them being here in Revelation 14. So I want to start in the Old Testament. Because Zion is mentioned 156 times in the Old Testament. But of those 156, only six of these passages are in the historical books of the Bible, you know, from Genesis through Esther. Zion's mentioned only six times. Two of those appear in the record of a prophecy by Isaiah in 2 Kings, so that's not part of the narrative. Two others are just repeated narratives in the book of Chronicles that duplicate the other two mentions in Samuel and Kings. So that means there are only two mentions of Zion in the narrative historical portions of the Bible. So the first is in 2 Samuel, where we read, and the king, that's David, and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. I right, we see here the first mention of Zion, and it's called the city of David. And realize in the Bible, there are countless times that a city or a place is called by the name that it went by at the time of the writing, as opposed to the time of the event being described. And this is one of those cases. The stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. This is what the, this area of Jerusalem is called after David took it and built this portion of Jerusalem up. I mean, think about it. If you're one of the Jebusites and you're told, hey, defend this place that we know as Zion, the city of David, against this powerful King David, I would think maybe there was something up with that. And it may seem like in this passage, we're equating the stronghold of Zion, which is called the city of David, with all of Jerusalem, but that's not what's happening here. Because the city of David, everywhere else in the Old Testament, is in Jerusalem, but isn't all of Jerusalem. Remember, the city of David is used to describe where the kings, including David, obviously, where they lived and where they were buried. It's the place where the palace and the mausoleum of the kings were. It's also where the armory, known as the House of the Forest, was. That's where Solomon put in all those ridiculously expensive shields when he made them. But there was something else in the city of David. When David took Jerusalem, he built a tent on Mount Zion, which became the place God dwelt and was worshipped. The tabernacle was still in Shiloh at this point. David made a different tent in the city of David where God was worshipped. If you know the story, long before David was king, the Ark of God's brought into battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines win the battle and they steal the Ark. And you know, God makes their lives so miserable, knocking their idols down, giving them boils, and then rats into the city. So they wind up gladly sending the Ark back to Israel. And when it gets to Israel, everyone there is afraid of the Ark, because the first 70 men who even look at the Ark just drop dead. And so it winds up in the house of a man named Abinadab, where it resides for 20 years. Flash forward 20 years. David is now reigning. David takes Jerusalem that we just read, and he builds the city of David like we just read. And now he wants to bring the ark to the city of David. And that whole, you know, Uzzah touching the ark and dying thing happens, and David's really upset, and he's afraid to bring it to Jerusalem. And we read this in 2 Samuel 6. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 
Now, where in the city of David was this brought? And we see this in verse 17. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, how do we know that this is neither a reference to Jerusalem in general or to the Temple Mount specifically? Because after David's death, his son Solomon builds the temple. And we read this in 1 Kings 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. This is the second mention of Zion here. And the priests took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. So as I said, this is the other mention, the only other mention of Zion in the historical books. Here it's also called the city of David, and it's clearly not a reference to Jerusalem in general or to the Temple Mount in particular. It's a place in Jerusalem, separate from the Temple Mount, because the ark goes from the city of David into the temple, all within Jerusalem. I promise I'm going somewhere here. As I decide, the Temple Mount is actually Mount Moriah, which is only mentioned very quickly in 2 Kings 3, we read, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ordon the Jebusite. And Mount Moriah is mentioned only one other time in the Bible, in Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is just an aside. I think the significance of the fact that the temple is built where Abraham also um, sacrificed Isaac is pretty ob obvious, Yes? We'll get there eventually. Back to Zion. Now, Zion is clearly, in the narrative sections of the Bible, a mountain peak in Jerusalem that is different from the Temple Mount. But the problem is this poses an issue. Because of the other 150 mentions of Zion, all in the Psalms and the Prophets, Zion is a moving target. Sometimes it is equated with Jerusalem as a whole. Like in Psalm 135. Oh, I lost my... Bear with me. Here we go. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Or in Psalm 76, his abode has been established in Salem, which is Jerusalem, his dwelling place in Zion. See, Jerusalem and Zion are paralleled here, and in a bunch of other Psalms. There's a bunch of these. Sometimes, Zion is equated with the tribe or nation of Judah as a whole, like in Psalm 78. He, God, rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. And, and maybe here, even the Temple Mount might be in view, because it's, we're talking about God's sanctuary here. But for sure, in Psalm 84, this is definitely after the Temple was built, and the Temple Mount is definitely called Zion here, where it says, They, the worshipers of God, go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. God was in the Temple. Then we have this which is prophesied hundreds of years after the temple was built. And this is where the ark of the Lord was when Isaiah prophesied. Behold, I and the children whom, whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So God dwelt in the temple at this point. So Mount Zion and the temple mount are one and the same. And what we see in these and many, many, many other Old Testament passages is that Zion is not one single physical place. The city of David was a physical place and it was equated with Mount Zion for a time. Because that, that's because Mount Zion, or Zion, it always refers to the place of God's dwelling on earth, wherever that is. 
In other words, as God's presence moves on earth, from the city of David to the temple, Zion, or Mount Zion, moves along with him. God's presence was in the city of David when the ark was there. It was on the temple mount when the ark was moved there. Both these places are in Jerusalem, so that's where God's presence was. Jerusalem's in Judah, which is why these are all equated with Mount Zion at times. In Psalm 76 and 135, Zion is Jerusalem because that's where God dwelt. In Psalm 78, God rejected Israel, chose Judah, so Judah is Zion because that is where God dwelt. In Psalm 84, the temple is where people appeared before God, so the temple mount is Zion because that is where God dwelt. But here in Isaiah 8, we see God dwells on Mount Zion, but this is actually a prophecy pronouncing judgment against both Israel and Judah. So let's get some context here. Starting in verse 13. Isaiah says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up a testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. Here we see physical Israel is rejected, including Judah. And yet there are, apart from them, those that hope in Yahweh, who dwells on Mount Zion. So what's this talking about? Well, by God's grace, we get some New Testament interpretation of what this really means. We get it in Romans 9, where Paul's explaining how physical Israel has been rejected, and he says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When we get to 1 Peter, Peter explains that, a physic, that physical Israel has been rejected and that the church is the true spiritual Israel. And he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone, and here's our Isaiah 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Another reference is Jesus himself. Jesus refers to this Isaiah passage when he tells the Jews that they're rejected and that the spiritual people of God are the real chosen people. He tells them the parable of a tenants where the original tenants are removed and other tenants are given the vineyard, and then he says this. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And here's our Isaiah reference. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In other words, when Isaiah speaks of Mount Zion, he's not speaking of anything having to do with physical Israel, the place or the people. He is talking about where God dwells on earth in this passage. He said not to be Israel and Judah. 
He is talking about the spiritual people of God. He is talking about the church. That's what Paul tells us, that's what Peter tells us, and that's what Jesus tells the Jews. This is what Isaiah was telling us. But wait, there's more. In Psalm 48, we read this of Mount Zion. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Aside from the fact that it's the joy of all the earth here, it says Mount Zion in the far north. But if you know geography, Jerusalem was in Judah, which is in the south of Israel. So how is the psalmist describing Mount Zion as in the far north? Well, understanding that Zion always speaks of a dwelling place of God wherever that is, this isn't referring to Jerusalem or anywhere in Israel. In fact, this isn't talking about anywhere on earth. This is what theologians will call cosmic north. It's talking about heaven. Like in Job 26.7, where Job describes the cosmic geography of heaven and earth created by God, and he says, He, God, stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. See, the north in Jewish thinking was where heaven is. Why? Because north is always up. And because of this, directional north, compass north, came to symbolize the direction of heaven in the Bible. Like where God describes the procedure for the burnt offering in the tabernacle. In Leviticus 1, he says this, of the priest killing the offering, he says, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw his blood against the sides of the altar. See, God dwelt to the north. And when Solomon builds his temple, the altar was actually elevated, so the priest had to walk upstairs to get to it, but it faced north. I don't know how well you can see that. The entrance of a temple faces east. The entrance of the Holy of Holies faces east. But not the altar, it's turned. It faced north. Because when the priest came to make a sacrifice before God, he had to literally ascend stairs to get to the altar, or symbolically ascend to the north into God's presence. And since Zion is where God's presence is, and where God dwells on earth, it's where heaven meets earth. And we've discussed this a few times. Where heaven meets earth happens on different mountains in different times in history in the Bible. We've discussed the mountain imagery a few times. God's dwelling place is always described as a mountain. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the Temple Mount, etc. It goes on and on. We also discussed how Eden was on a mountain. When we looked at the judgment of Satan, and how that was God's original dwelling place on earth, the Garden of Eden, we talked about that whole divine council, how God intended for himself and men and angels to all dwell together. But note what God says about it here. He says to Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Here, the north, where God dwells, is above the heights of the clouds. It's above the stars. It's heaven where God dwells. So here, in Psalm 48, referring to the place of God dwelling, this is talking about heaven. God is the great king. So the question then becomes where does God dwell today? Where is his dwelling place on earth between Christ's two comings? Where does heaven meet earth between his two comings? Well, it's the same place God dwelt and where heaven meets earth when the book of Revelation was written. And the answer is in the church. The church is the dwelling place of God. We are where heaven meets earth. We are the temple. We are the true Israel. We are Mount Zion. So let's look at the other New Testament reference to Mount Zion in Hebrews 12. This is the only other time it's mentioned in the New Testament. For you have not come to what may be touched. See, it's not a physical place. 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the, the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Here he's talking about the physical Mount Sinai, which is where God dwelt, where heaven met earth. This is where he made the old covenant with Israel. But you, he says, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, those of the dead saints, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, this is talking about the church, but it's talking about the church of all time. This is those who are enrolled in heaven, which are we who still dwell on earth. It's the spirits of the righteous made perfect, those who have died in Christ. And note that we also dwell with God and all of his angels. See, this was God's original design in Eden. Now it happens in the church. We, the church, are Mount Zion. Now why spend all this time talking about Mount Zion when we're supposed to be talking about the book of Revelation? I'll give you three good reasons. First, if we don't understand what Mount Zion refers to in the Bible... If we believe that it's a static, physical place, then our theology is going to be very bad. See, good theology needs to be consistent theology. And to think that Zion is one physical place is going to lead us to contradictions, since Zion is in a bunch of different places in the Bible. And then not only will we have to say, well, yeah, there are contradictions in the Bible, the bigger problem is we'll misunderstand 163 very important passages of the Bible, which brings me to my second reason. As we've seen, we cannot interpret apocalyptic visions in the Bible on their own terms. We have to look outside of these passages to understand what's being described. And if we think of Zion as a physical place, and we read in Revelation 14.1 that John sees Mount Zion, and we think, oh, it's Jerusalem or the literal Temple Mount, then we won't understand what we're really seeing here. Third, if we don't understand this verse and what John is seeing here, we can't understand other passages of Revelation, including Revelation 13 that we just finished, or Revelation 7, where we'll get into the 144,000 in just a minute. Uh, do you remember when we looked at Revelation 7? Oh, look, it was back in January. It feels like forever ago, doesn't it? Back in January. Well, if you remember, we discussed how Revelation 7 is such a controversial passage, right, with the 144,000. Let's read it again. John says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of his sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth of the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seals, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
We're not going to go back through this again, but we saw when we did. How one interprets that passage, Revelation 7, is critical to their understanding of the book of Revelation as a whole. When we consider this passage, I told you that the 144,000 represent the church, the elect of all time. And not literally 12,000 men from 12 little tribes of physical Israel. And when I told you that, I referred to 25 other passages outside of Revelation to show you how I came to that conclusion. And now when we get here to Revelation 14.1, I just use 19 more passages to show how Mount Zion represents the church. That when we see that John sees Mount Zion, the dwelling place of God, and we see that in this dwelling place are Christ and the 144,000 that we looked at in chapter 7, we can either say with confidence that what John is seeing here is the church with Christ in her midst, or we have to say that this, chapter 7, chapter 13, in fact, most of the book of Revelation, plus 162 other passages in the Bible have absolutely nothing to do with us today. And when we do that, and we don't realize this is showing the elect of God marked with the name of Christ and the Father, with Christ in her midst, when, they're sh when God is showing them as contrary to those marked with the name and the number of the beast, which is the world outside of Christ, then we'll miss what John is seeing here, we'll miss what Christ is communicating here. And what is he communicating? Well, you do you remember what we said the seal was that we were sealed with on our foreheads as God's elect? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit by whom we are sealed unto the day of redemption when Christ returns. Here, that seal is described as the name of Christ, who is the Lamb standing in our midst, and also the name of his Father. So we have the seal, which is the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. We have the entire Trinity present here. And the name that we bear, both the Lamb and of the Father, it's not two separate names. It's the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father. It's one name. It is Yahweh. It is the name of God, the name that properly belongs to all three persons of the Godhead. And that Holy Trinity, along with the 144,000 sealed by God, the elect of all time, stands here on Mount Zion, the dwelling place of God, which is the church. So first, we see here that God is with us now. But more than that, the verses right before this talk about those marked with the number of the beast and the beasts themselves and the dragon. We saw they were all in each other's presence. Those who worshiped the beast were in the presence of the beast. The beast was in the presence of the dragon. We see them all dwelling together. What John is describing here are the two sides of a spiritual war that we are in. This is a spiritual war that has been raging since the fall. This is the triune God and his true people versus everyone else. Satan, the unsaved, the other fallen angels that pretend to be gods. They are all against us. And what we see here are the elect of all time in the 144,000 and with them the Lamb. This is what we saw way back in chapter 7 when you saw that they were in heaven together. In chapter 5 when John saw heaven we saw the 24 elders that represents the saints of all time in heaven if you remember. 12 represent the Old Testament saints, 12 represent the New Testament saints. All in heaven. We read this. Among the elders I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain. See Christ is among his church in heaven. But here in Revelation 14 we aren't in heaven. We're on earth. If you've lost track of that through the visions, it, it, it gets kind of tricky in spots. But we know from the very next verse where we read, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. See, John hears the voice from heaven because he is on earth. The point is, among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, is saying the same thing as, On Mount Zion stood the lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The only difference is location. In other words, in the church, heaven comes to earth because Christ is in our midst. And this is what Mount Zion represents. This is what we are. 
And we are here set in opposition to the world, the beasts, which are worldly power and false religion, and Satan. And this is the war that we are in. And if we read this and don't understand what's being described, then quite honestly, we're falling right into Satan's trap. And if we don't understand what's being said here, if we don't check the entire Bible to compare the whole of Scripture, and we believe a text like this do not apply to us, then you know what? Satan has convinced us to sit out the war. And the real danger is that this matters for how we interpret the entire Bible. Because like I said when we started this series, differences on the end times, when the rapture happens, if it does happen at all, whether there's a literal millennium or not, whether Christ returns before or after the millennium, these themselves are second, third tier issues. No reason to break fellowship over. Absolutely not worth fighting over. But these views will color our understanding of the entire Bible. They will affect how we understand the entire history of redemption. They will affect what we believe the purpose and role of the church is in the here and now. And when we fall into that trap and let the second beast of false teaching and false ideas about the Bible influence us, we are all the more prone to worship the first beast. And then, like we saw, worshiping the beast is worshiping the dragon. We've actually fallen for the same trick that Adam did in the garden. We're falling for the did God actually say. And then when temptation comes, if we don't know what God actually said, we are going to fall. And this is part of the war. This is one of Satan's tactics. This is what we just talked about in chapter 13. That false doctrine, remember I said that looked kind of like the truth? That the best counterfeit looks almost exactly like the truth? Just close enough to keep enough people from questioning it? That was the beast. That was the second beast. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. Remember, this is the same as those two witnesses from chapter 12 that perform these same works. And that is the word of God. This is false teaching. It's teaching of false Christianity. And if our whole view of the Bible is skewed and we don't understand the truth of Scripture, then we have been deceived. And knowing all this, I want to return to the address in Philadelphia from the very first vision cycle. Knowing what we know now, at this point in the book of Revelation, about Satan's ploys now, how Satan's going to intensify these until the very end, how bad it's going to get at the end, this is the encouragement we need to hear from Christ now, and it's the encouragement we need to hear again and again as the war intensifies. And he said this, he says to us, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word. Notice the importance of his word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of a synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. These are the false believers who will apostatize, right? These are those who really worship Satan. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word, again, his word, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And remember, this is dwell on the earth as opposed to dwell on heaven as we've seen. This is talking about the unsaved of the judgment. I am coming soon, thank God. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, remember we saw, this is war language here. We are at war. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, that is the church. Never shall we go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. This is the seal that we have of God's name. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which as we saw in the uh, book of Hebrews is Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem 
which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, we're at war. And it's so very important to understand what it is that we're reading in Revelation because it's describing what's going on now. It's describing on how the war is going to intensify as we approach the end. Remember, John saw the entire history of redemption up until now in Revelation 12, 1 through 6. Then he sees the church age in particular and the attacks of Satan in the here and now and in the future for the rest of chapter 12. That's the war we're in. In chapter 13, John is given a vision of one side of the war. Satan, the two beasts, those who worship him. We see Satan's power, how he holds sway over people, how he convinces them, even those who say they are Christians, to worship him through lies, through false teaching. And they wear their army's color. They wave their flag. They take the mark and the name of the beast. But then here, in Revelation 14, we see the other side of the war. We see the army that has already won and will yet win. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This is the church. And next week, as we go further into Revelation 14, we're going to see more detail about who we are as God's church.